Santa Cruz is home to such a rich surf history, and I feel like much of the story hasn't really been told. We are all aware of the characters, but I feel like sometimes the media is focused on some of the more sensational of the characters or illicit storylines that's really done a disservice to us, the general fans or surfing public, who are just interested to hear the real basic historical timelines and facts about who, what, when, and where. Yeah, I think uh, it's such a beautifully visual area, Santa Cruz, just really um, nice ways, you know, just the geography of the, the coastline and the land. And right. So I think people get pretty passionate about, you know, capturing that moment. And so I guess that has a lot to do with how Santa Cruz has been influential with uh, surfing in the media just over the years. It's been pretty prominently featured. So I was talking with my friend, the surf photographer and filmmaker, Tony Roberts. His episode is number 25 of Surf Splendor. Make sure to check that out in the archives if you have not already. And anyways, Tony was raised in Santa Cruz, and he documented a lot of the surf and skate movement in the 80s and 90s through a series of films, which you've very likely seen. And we were trying to develop a plan for how it might be best to share the stories of Santa Cruz, perhaps some that haven't yet been told. Tony had a lot of ideas, he had a lot of names, but he said that the one guy that I should start with is Richard Schmidt. He said there are plenty of people that came before Richard, but Richard's a great starting point because he is universally respected and loved within the community, as well as through the Hawaiian surfing community. So that's where I'll begin, with Tony's advice. This might be a good time to give you a short bio on Richard, but I know you came here for the full-length bio, so I will let Richard do the talking. My name is David Scales, and big wave icon and Santa Cruz legend Richard Schmidt is the subject of today's episode of Surf Splendor. Enjoy. recorded this interview at Richard's kitchen table in his home in Santa Cruz, mere steps away from the ocean. Yeah, so I guess I started surfing about 1968. Um, I was eight years old, and uh, we would go down to the river mouth beach right in front of the boardwalk, and back then a lot of people were riding inflatable mats. It was like before boogie board, so a lot of belly boarding on these inflatable mats, and um, it's crazy. There'd be like you know forty people on inflatable mats out there, just riding the closeouts or like riding moms up the and river. dads and stuff and everything. Well, oh yeah, families, moms and dads, and so that's where I got my love for uh, the ocean. My parents loved to go to the beach, and I had three brothers, so uh, we started playing out there. And uh, we also, in, in addition to the mats, we'd get these styrofoam boards, those old styrofoam boards, and ride them as well. I used to stand up on those things when I was like eight years old, and. Then me and my brothers talked uh, our parents into buying a longboard from this guy, Otto. There's this guy, Otto, that had a surf shop right at the base of the wharf. Mm. And uh, he had all these classic old longboards. And we uh, bought a board from him and then shared it and rode off the point at Cowles Cove. Really a great way for learning. And um, this kind of went from there, yeah. Who were the guys around that time? Like, Who were the uh, key figures that were surfing? Um, back then, the good guys, I mean, Joey Thomas has always been one of the best surfers here in Santa Cruz, and uh, he was definitely one of the standouts way back then. Uh, Greg Bonner, uh, John Arnold, really good tube rider, Michelle Janone. Uh, Doug Hout was, you know, has been around forever in Santa Cruz and building boards in the late 60s, as well as uh, Joey Thomas, um, you know, John Mel. Yeah, I heard... I don't know, years ago, that it's like there's a higher number of shapers per capita in Santa Cruz than any other surf region in the world. Like more shapers per <laughs> surfer than yeah. anywhere else. You know? Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. A lot of people are real craftsmen. and Right. Uh, I don't know what it, what, it, what it is, but um, yeah, it's pretty infectious, you know, the whole surfing environment and 
Santa Cruz because it's really visual. You know, it's um, all the surf spots are like amphitheaters because there's cliffs that look down right. to them, and so uh, people look out at it and just go, "Wow, I like to do that." And, and the people that are surfers are always just checking the waves, and yeah, it's just kind of infiltrating in the whole community. One important detail for the surfing world is that the wetsuit for the purpose of surfing was brought to popularity in Santa Cruz by Jack O'Neill. It was invented in 1951 by a physicist, and Jack began experimenting with it in San Francisco in 52. And eventually, he opened his second surf shop in Santa Cruz in 1959, just in time for the big surf culture boom. Bob and Bill Maestrel of Body Glove were following kind of a simultaneous path in Manhattan Beach, just to keep the record straight. There were wetsuits uh, back then. Um, I definitely started without a wetsuit, and I'll just never forget uh, my 12th birthday. Went to Portola Surf Shop and bought a Primo full-length wetsuit. Oh, it was just like heaven, man. We had a, <laughs> a barbecue down on the beach at Cowles. We roasted hot dogs. I got to surf in a wetsuit, and I was warm. and Yeah. Just an incredible experience. What yeah. brand wetsuit was that? Uh, Primo. Primo. P- yeah, okay. Primo wetsuits from okay. Mike Locatelli. He owned a surf shop, uh, Portola Surf Shop. Among those surfers that you na- mentioned, was there any professional surfing at that point? Like, was that even a, a potential goal for a young guy coming up? <clears throat> um, yeah, but, you know, in the early 70s, um, not much. You know, mid-70s, yeah, there was a couple of pro contests that came to town. Remember the South Africans came, went for a team challenge or something like in the mid, mid-70s. and. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Joey Thomas did really well. I think he got second place. Okay. Yeah, there wasn't a, wasn't a whole lot. It was just kind of getting started, that whole professional surfing scene, mid, mid-70s, mid it seemed like. Was there any ambition to, like, go travel and surf outside of Santa Cruz? Or I, I mean, I guess what my question is, like, how do you finance that sort of a thing? And if professional surfing isn't an option, you just work for a period of time, save up money, and go on trips? Or Yeah, that was, that was kind of what, what we did. You know, I would uh, work summers as a lifeguard and a sales rep and make some money and then just spend the rest of the year doing, you know, going to Hawaii mostly, but also traveling. And yeah. Santa Cruz is such a great place to surf, but, you know, with the wetsuit on year round, you have a lot of people wanting to get out of Santa Cruz and go somewhere where they could take their wetsuit off. And yeah. so you have these uh, warm climates and, and nice waves. And so you do have people from Santa Cruz traveling all over the world just because you just get sick of wearing a wetsuit all the time. So, yeah, yeah we heard of a place, uh, Puerto Escondido, when I was uh, turning 18. That was pretty incredible to go down there. In 1980, Surfing Magazine published a series of photos of Richard surfing scary, big Puerto Escondido, shot by Santa Cruz photographer Chris Cloth. It was rumored to be the Mexican pipeline, but this was the first time the surfing public laid eyes on this fabled wave. Richard ventured down south with Cloth and another Santa Cruz surfer, Vince Collier. Cloth found out about it. Some Chris Cloth found out about it somehow, okay. and uh, said, I, "I know where this spot." He starts frothing, and <laughs> we got to get down there. And I had already gone to a semester of college, and I was going to go to another one. And I just got persuaded, you know, just just go on the surf trip with us. Yeah, I uh, kind of glad I did. It was pretty pretty amazing experience. You know, down there for a month, and I mean, I just went back there this last summer and really was reflecting on how it used to be down there. It's crazy how it's been built up over the years. They actually hotels on the beach and stuff. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, those um, that trip in 1980, when those photos got published, had pub- uh, photos been published in the surf mags of Puerto before, or was that kind of its first? It might have been one of its first. I feel like it was. I don't, I don't remember seeing any photos of that place. It seemed yeah. like I would say, oh, man, look at those waves. I'd like to go surf there. So I don't think... That could have been one of the first uh, trips where the photos were published. Were there other guys surfing down there when you yeah. went? Yeah, yeah. There was there was a lot of um, kind of kind of older expats, you know, oh, okay. and, and guys that are kind of hanging out that liked it. And 
Yeah, we just arrived on the scene, me and Vince, just pushing each other, just pulling these big closeout barrels to get barrel. They're just shaking their heads, going, all oh, these guys are going to die out here, you know. But we, yeah. That was just when we initially first got off the plane. We were just gun-ho, you know, and we got so a little psyched. more selected. But uh, it got it got really good on that trip. Um, big A-frames. Did you have an interest in big wave surfing prior to that trip? Yeah, just growing up in Santa Cruz, the conditions are pretty raw and pretty powerful. And so you just kind of gravitate towards that, you know, and then... When you get in a situation where the waves are big and powerful and, and warm, it just you know makes it that much easier for you having grown up in a wetsuit. So feels more forgiving. Yeah, kind of. more yeah, more forgiving. So that definitely inspired uh, big wave thing a little bit that trip. Yeah, in, in Puerto. And so the following winter, I went to Hawaii and oh, okay. ended up going there for 16 years every year. Hawaii has always been a mecca for the surfer, especially those interested in big wave riding. However, while now time in Hawaii is a requisite for professional surfers looking to establish their career, back then Hawaii was simply the end goal. If you were lucky enough to secure a paycheck through surfing, it was simply a means to finance a winter in Hawaii. There was nothing more. Just incredible how, you know, you, you'll you be there and you'll not write anything shorter than like a 7-4 for like a month straight. You know, just the energy that's just coming at you on a daily basis is just incredible. Just really inspiring and challenging. And yeah, uh, Greg Bonner and uh, John Arnold kind of took us under their wing a little bit, showed us around. And I'll never forget surfing uh, Sunset Beach with uh, Greg Bonner. Yeah. And he just was paddling out and mid halfway up the face just spun around and just whipped it on like about a 10 foot west peak mm. way like wow that's how you do it huh wow incredible surf for that guy whose boards were you riding at that time were you bringing boards from santa cruz with you yeah yeah doug Hout. i um doug Hout used to uh help me out with my equipment back then he made okay. me a nice quiver for puerto which worked out really well you know a seven four and a six six single fence just Worked out great. And then he made me a couple boards for Hawaii as well, which which worked out well. I just I try to put myself <clears throat> in that headspace because nowadays you forecast swells, you know exactly what the waves are gonna be like, so you can get a quiver made for that specific wave. At that time I'm wondering, Puerto, you really didn't know what to expect. You know? Yeah. I mean we heard it was kinda of like pipeline, so you know, nice, okay. nice uh meaty uh Kind of knifey pintail single fin, yeah, something similar to what they were riding at Pipeline back in those days. Sure, is what we kind of went off of. Sure, a lot more duck diving though. Yeah, a lot more <laughs> duck diving than Pipeline. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, you obviously, like you said, spent a lot of time in Hawaii and established kind of a reputation as a big wave surfer. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny how it happened. Just spending. You know, like 16 winters over there, you know, three to six months a year. And just um, in Hawaii, you just ride big waves. If you're just living on the North Shore, the big waves just keep coming. So you either ride them or you sit on the beach and watch them. So mm -hmm. it's just kind of a thing that just uh, transpired. And uh, a lot of people, though, when it got a certain size, they kind of just didn't go out, you Disappear. know. But it's pretty hard not to go out when it's offshore and sunny and just big, beautiful lions and yeah, like in the early 80s, uh, Waimea was just going off, and it really wasn't that crowd. Not too much attention was going on yeah. towards there. So I guess being a guy from California that was out there consistently, I kind of got a little bit of attention and got a reputation as a guy that would go yeah. when the waves got big. You ended up being invited to the Eddy. Tell me about that experience. Oh, yeah, that was uh, just amazing to be part of that for so many years. Um I guess it was our second or third one, uh, like the eighty nine ninety season. They had that real epic Eddie Ical contest where it was like 25, 30 feet and just perfect. And mm -hmm. Brock Little got a big barrel. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Keone ended up winning it that year. But that was still to this day uh, the pinnacle of my surfing career was surfing those waves with that crew of guys, you know, 24 guys that were just amazing surfers and really not that many big wipeouts, you know, just really respectful toward the wave and just the waves that I saw that day and witnessed and uh, rode were just an amazing experience. So I ended up getting third in the contest and um, 
it was just just really a cool thing to be a, a, a part of and just the whole uh reverence towards Eddie you know right. and the ceremony and the Hawaiian culture and how I was accepted and brought into that whole thing was pretty pretty special and then uh after that contest, I did really well, uh, and then it didn't wasn't held for about eight ten years after that. Yeah, but it was a good excuse to go to the North Shore and train and surf every day. And oh yeah, I'm I'm on hold for this contest, and mm-hmm. I enjoyed uh, just being a part of that. And it gave me kind of a legitimacy to be hanging out on the North Shore surfing every day. It was pretty cool. Were you the first Californian to be invited to the Eddie? Uh, possibly, yeah, I think so. I haven't seen that written anywhere. I was just trying to think of another Californian who might have been. I think I got a poster in my room that has all the... Uh, all the invitees. Yeah. I don't... Oh, um, there's another guy. Marty, Marty Hoffman. Oh, okay. Marty Hoffman was also part of that crew, and he's from California. Oh, okay. well, kind of the North Shore, though, too, though. Flippy. Did he surf in the event, <clears throat> though, or was he just invited? And Yeah, no, I think he, he surfed, too. Yeah, okay. Marty, Marty surfed in it, too. Okay. I mean, he is from California, but I think he's kind of like from Hawaii too, you know, because his sure. father was, he spent a lot of time there. Sure. Um, do you follow currently professional big wave surfing at all? Like the big wave world tour? Yeah. I really enjoy kind of checking out, seeing what's going on and, yeah. um, when the contests are and all that. Yeah. It's fun. I'm curious about your thoughts on it because like I try to follow it and I feel, um, it's not really so geared for the spectator, I guess. Like with the other uh, WCT events, like the one at Margaret River right now, they run it over you know a week-long period of time. There's a lot of pre-hype that leads up to it, so you get excited. There's all this production value, and it, it's a good spectator sport. The big wave thing, I feel like sometimes it just happens, and then you see the news like, oh, Makua Rothman won whatever event it was yesterday. Yeah. What are the challenges, do you think, that they're – you know, that uh, face professional, trying to make it competitive and trying to make it professional? Um, just the most challenging thing is, is conditions because it's such a rare event where the waves get worthy of a big wave contest. I mean, they set the standards really high and you can't just pick a date. We're going to do it on this waiting period. The waiting periods are like three months long, which is just exactly. ridiculous. You know, like the Eddie Icala used to wait for every year. It was three months long. It's just and you wait, like you said, nine years sometimes. Nine years and three months every year. Oh, exactly. I got, yeah, I got burned out. I mean, I was actually, I just, I just, one year I was undone, you know. It's like I was still invited. I just kind of said I'm over it. I just can't live in limbo. You're basically living yeah, in limbo right. waiting for that next swell. You know, and a lot of times it doesn't happen in eight, nine years, but you know how many swells that were potential swells that could have happened? It just drives you crazy. Like, oh, yeah. It's on the chart, so you're watching it, and it doesn't happen. And you fly over, and and then it peaked out during the night, and it doesn't happen. Right. And um, so, the, yeah, the, yeah, it's really the challenge is to you can't really um, put in a package and market it for a specific date because it, you know, it's just a, such a long waiting period. It's, it'd be nice if they could just focus on two or three weeks, you know, but then it won't happen because it's so rare. So I guess you got to have the long waiting period, but yeah, hard to market it to the masses when it's just yeah, so rare. Is there a better way to do it, do you think? Um, I think they might uh, do it a little better if they just lower the standards a little bit. Like this year, there were some uh, chances they could have had the contest at Jaws, and they just right. it's like the standards are so high, like, oh, no, we're just going to wait. And if they could just try to have more of the contest even though it's not like you know epic epic just you know just to get the guys out there and competing mm-hmm. and uh get some exposure in the media be better i guess like i wa- i'm a big fan and i want to watch it but even for me who's fully committed it's disappointing when at the end of the year they ran three out of six events or two out of six events or whatever it is it's disheartening as a fan you know yeah i think uh <clears throat> if there's any way they could you know run all six events but i guess that, that could also backfire too because then the if you held them in subpar conditions then it's not going to be as dramatic and you're going to lose yeah. fans that way too so it's it's challenging i was wondering about a format that may be more similar to like the xxl awards where there's not necessarily judges on the spot but we see these big wave sessions take place throughout the year and then what if they just kind of green light it like hey there's a swell coming to jaws or mavericks 
we're giving you guys a green light during these this swell. Any photos and video that you submit will go into the running for the Big Wave World Tour, you know? That would be kind of cool. I'd say, okay, this is the swell, and it's going to be judged during these two days. And um, After it'll be fact, documented. Though. Yeah, exactly. You know, people will be filming, and at the end, there'll be a panel that can go through all the stuff. Yeah. And We're not sending our filmers, but if you get documentation and you send it <laughs> yeah. to us, we'll put it in the running, yeah. you know? Yeah, that might make it a little more easier to handle, you know. And then they could package it and sell it to us, the consumer. Just, I'd be more interested to watch that than sitting in front of my computer for eight hours waiting for sets to roll in. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. yeah, that's a good idea. I think that would be a good idea, actually. It, it just seems like there's, I don't know. There's kind of a I don't know a blend of the two models, the Big Wave World Tour and the W or the XXL thing. By the way, Puerto's added to the Big Wave World Tour this year. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's uh, they might have a good good chance of running the event you there because it's right? very a consistent spot. And even when it's like, you know, twelve feet, you know, fourteen, you know, it doesn't have to be twenty feet. It, right. It's going to be pretty dramatic. You know, that way it's pretty dramatic when it's ten, twelve feet. Totally. Too. So yeah, it'd be cool if they were able to pull that. I think it adds some of that amphitheater experience that you're talking about with Santa Cruz, where like Jaws breaks out in the middle and Mavericks breaks out in the middle of, you know, not the middle, but far out. This, it's like you can stand on the beach and watch it. It's um, also, it's not a reef break, you know, so that adds a different element. It's only a barrel, essentially. You know, these other waves barrel, but you can get a drop and get a 10 at Jaws. Yeah. This, it's like, if you just make the drop and don't get barreled, you're not getting the score. Yeah, so, that's a great, very exciting venue. That, that's awesome. Yeah. That's cool. How is it different in terms of, um, I don't know, fear level or skill level surfing somewhere like Puerto versus uh, Waimea? Um, I, you know, you got to be, you got to have a lot of knowledge and, and a lot of luck sometimes just to, to, to catch away because it shifts around a lot. <clears throat> Waimea is pretty specific. The wave comes in right in that one spot. Mm-hmm. And so um, you got to really know your lineups and be right there. But uh, Puerto um, has a set of hazards that's a little different. Just, you know, there's no channel to paddle out in and um, it shifts around. And, oh, man, getting caught inside out there is pretty horrendous. Yeah. We got it so big one year. There was so much water moving. This guy was paddling out and he hits it. His board hits a chop and it, the current takes his board and his board disappears for like six seconds. There's so much water. Grabbed it, pulled underwater, and popped up about 20 feet away. While he was just paddling. While he was just paddling. That's how much water is moving out there. It's a really crazy dynamic place. You know, the rips, currents out there, the the water move. I've never seen anything like it anywhere. Really? Yeah. So it's definitely uh, more of a waterman kind of a thing. But but boy, the uh, the girth of of a wave like YMA, there's just so much water in the wave. It, mm. Man, when you wipe out on that wave. When you're in the in, in the bowl, it's uh, you you get thrashed. Sure. And, and more roll towards shore rather than Puerto's kind of up and down. You just get thrashed and you you get pop back up. Whereas why man just kind of take you take you for a ride, you know, hundred yards down the point. While Richard had been chasing huge surf in Mexico and Hawaii, little did he know that one of the world's heaviest and best big waves, Mavericks had been looming in his own backyard, a mere 60 minutes north in Half Moon Bay. <clears throat> that same uh, contest I wrote, uh, the Eddie Aikau 8990, um, it was just a, you know, once every 10 year kind of a swell and it was just huge, big, perfect lines. and So was it the same swell that hit Waimea that was then coming to California? Yeah, that same swell was hitting okay. California. And my brother Dave ran into Jeff Clark the next day. I mean, I, I surfed these huge waves at the eddy, and I called my brother that night. It was just, just frothing on what a day I just had and how good the waves were. And, and then he called me the next night, and it was like equally as frothy, if not more, about this place that he had surfed that day. He ran into Jeff up at uh, Ocean Beach, and it was just kind of big and perfect, but really hard to get out. And so Jeff goes, I'll take you to a spot that's breaking, but there's a channel you can make it out. So they went down there on that swell, and 
so any of my brothers said you got to get down here uh, you got to you got to bring your big wave board home this year because there's a spot that's you could fit semi trucks inside the barrels it's just like incredible so that uh spring i went back up there with my with him and some friends and jeff and thank god i brought my ymea board back because it was really similar to what ymea offers just deep water into onto a boil and big huge faces and so yeah for a couple of years we would just surf it and just kind of checking it out you know vince collier my brother dave tom powers and a crew of santa cruz guys and uh just slowly got recognition and became a thing where people wanted to travel from hawaii and stuff to surf the spot yeah when when your brother surfed it with jeff that day you were in hawaii um how long had jeff been surfing it prior to inviting your brother uh, I heard I heard like 15 years or something. He had been surfing it on his own. That's so insane. And, yeah, incredible. You know, to be out there alone, that place is scary. I guess he used to ride the lefts. You know, he used to paddle out around the lefts and catch the lefts. What? Uh, why did he wait that long to introduce it to somebody? And then also, why do you think he finally decided to invite your brother? Uh, he tried to introduce it to a lot of people over the years. Oh, okay. There's a lot of his friends just didn't want anything to do with it they would look at it and kind of yeah go ahead jeff wow no thanks but um maybe my brother and tom powers actually was with my brother and they were the first guys he introduced to that really wanted a piece of it they went out there and they got some good waves and and then of course uh, santa cruz is such a huge uh epicenter of, of surfing energy that you know other people from santa cruz like myself and Vince Collier was like, wow, this is something special. Let's let's pursue this. You know, this is like Mount Everest right here in our backyard. And um, It's fascinating, though, <laughs> that it could remain a secret for that long. Yeah. If for nothing else other than the spectacle. Like, I would think you and your buddies would have gone up there as kids and just watched it, you know? Yeah, well, it was kind of like a myth, kind of like a lore. My, my friend used to fish out of Half Moon Bay, and he said, man, when you go out that channel in the winter there's this wave out there that was just so heavy yeah he, I, I used to hear stories about it you know oh, okay but i never really went out and checked it myself so there was kind of this uh, myth about a, a wave that okay. broke up there for a lot of years but no one really took the time out to really check it out where does the name come from i guess it was the name of a uh, dog mavericks was a dog <clears throat> um and there used to be a guy that maybe went out there and surfed the inside break you know and mm-hmm ended up calling it Mavericks. It was his dog. dog. Yeah, Mavericks, yeah. Interesting. Um, what makes Mavericks unique from other big wave spots? Uh, it's just, it grows so much when it comes out. The groundswell, when it's coming out of the deep water, doesn't really look that big. And then when it hits the boil, it grows exponentially. I mean, I've never seen a wave grow that much bigger. Than, you see it and it's coming, it looks pretty big, and all of a sudden it hits the reef and it just you know, gross to, like, I don't know, like, I don't know, it just, it just, it just jacks up so hard and so dramatically. Like instantly within the matter of five seconds? Yeah, it's, you know, every, almost every takeoff out there is late. Sometimes you can get a roll in, you know, it's a little lumpy, you can catch yeah. a lump, but when it's really clean, ruler edge, man, it, it, it hits that reef and it grows so dramatically, so fast that your timing and everything has got to be so perfect. It's, it's the most challenging wave I've ever Ridden the most horrendous. And is it so much power in that way? When you when you fall out there, man, you just get thrashed, and then you got the rocks, you know. And I guess the uh, it's supposed to be sharks out there too. I never seen one, but um, just the whole uh, vibe of the place is, is just so heavy in the wave itself. Just so challenging. I, I just I think it's the most I think it's the heaviest wave in the world. Is it? I don't know. I haven't traveled the world, but from what I've experienced, yeah, it's on another scale than anything else I've ever seen. Um, I'm that's I'm glad you said that because just at, sh- strictly as a spectator, it's very difficult to define the nuance between the nuance of difference between that and dungeons or uh, YMEA or whatever else. You know, they all look big and scary to me. Yeah. No, it's uh, and it's also the topography of the bottom too, which makes it so hairy because it gets really shallow 
and then it gets deep. And so if you get washed over that shallow spot, it's like a waterfall going into that deeper cavern. Because it's shallow, deep, shallow, deep. It's kind of like steps. Have you so, been in a position <clears throat> where you've gotten washed over? Or do you hit the bottom and physically feel the wash over? Uh, you can. I never have. I've talked to people. But I just know that the topography, that sure, that's why people end up getting stuff down there for two ways and stuff. Because it, it's shallow and it goes deep. Yeah. So it just it rushes over the shallow and then just falls over the deep spot. Mm-hmm. So it just throws you really, really deep. So that uh, that's part of it that makes it so sketchy. What's your opinion on the current kind of, I don't know, politics of Mavericks or the situation, how it's gotten more crowded over the years? And I know um, events have run there successfully at times. I think you got second place at the Mavericks event, right? When it was the Quicksilver? <clears throat> yeah, the very first event I got second, yeah. It was the very first one? Yeah. Okay. Who Did Flea win yeah, that? Yeah, Flea won that one, Flea yeah. That one. Um, what are your opinions about the politics of Mavericks? Oh, it's uh, it's it's kind of sad because there are a lot of different uh, people trying to make it work. I mean, it's such a spectacle. It should be packaged and brought to the world where people can really appreciate um, the wave itself. And you know, it should just be a celebration of the athletes and the wave itself. But I don't know. I I don't really like um, to have an, an elimination format on a wave that's that intense mm. I really like the Yeti Ical format where you surf twice like you do what on a normal day and then they just take your top scores and call call a winner rather than surfing and having a timeline where you got to catch your waves and and then there's elimination so you're out there and guys with your heat and you're surfing against them because if they get a good wave you're going to get knocked out whereas the other format you're cheering the guys on and mm. So it's, it's kind of getting, people are getting turned into gladiators a little bit, you know. Um, but on the other hand, you know, <clears throat> it makes for a better um, contest as far as pushing someone's physical level to the maximum. And for the spectator, it's great, you know, because people are pushing themselves where they normally wouldn't wouldn't be. But, um, yeah, it's uh, a lot of people really want to make it work. And make it happen, and I, I think it's going to. There's a lot of good people involved right now. Are there? That. Yeah, there are. Yeah, there's a, a lot of like like Daryl Flevorosko is on the board, and um, uh, cartel management. This new uh, has taken it over. It's a new uh, organizer for the event, and they really have grand visions to make it happen. And you know, so I think it's going to happen, and hopefully it'll be packaged and marketed, and the athletes will get rewarded, which they deserve, you know, for the future years to come. And it seems like cartel management ran into a few hiccups this year, though, right? I mean, like, yeah, I heard they there was a little squabble with a couple of the photographers, with in terms of just day rate and. Um, and then even like Pete Mel didn't get the invite, which I think was pretty controversial, you know. So what's what do you what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, they could have maybe made some better decisions. What what was behind that? those decisions? Uh, well, I, I'm not really that up to date on all that stuff. I'm just like yourself. I've just kind of heard this and I've sure. heard that, and I'm not really part of the committee that decides these things but i guess peter mel is part of the world surf league and he runs the world surf league and so uh the organizer of the contest thinks it's a conflict or somebody thinks it's a conflict of interest like i don't know why but yeah that's kind of lame peter mel should be in that he's a past winner yeah Yeah, that's ridiculous so it's it's really too bad that there's controversy surrounding that because it is it is a great event and the athletes that are out there all the time deserve to be rewarded and have a venue where they could display their surfing and I think all I the way it looks from the outside is the last thing that you want is for some governing body with their eyes on dollar signs come in and pervert, you know, what we love and believe is pure. You know, that's that's the worst case scenario. Sure. And so I'm not saying that is what's happening. It's just that when these little decisions get made along the way, that becomes your concern. Yeah, it'd be nice because it's a really great event. People love watching that. I mean, 
man versus the ocean. It is like Mount Everest of, mm-hmm. of the ocean that way. And um, it's kind of sad that there is controversy surrounding that because it, it'll get worked out. I think it's just some growing pains with the event. Okay. Yeah, because you started out by saying you think that it is the right people in place. Yeah, so. yeah. There are some really great people that are working together to make it the event that it could be. So yeah. I, I have high hopes for that event. Good, good. Um, who among that scene, I know like Mavericks obviously has gotten a lot more crowded over the years. And I guess even one of the days, one of the big swells leading up to this season was like stand up paddlers out there and everything. Who among that crew currently are the standouts, do you think? Uh, I haven't been surfing up there for quite a few years, so I really can't say. I'm just like you. I'll see some photos and some videos and, you know, I talk to people and I hear what people have to say, but, um. I guess uh, Garrett McMurray did really well on that one one big day. And uh, who's the other guy that got an invite? Oh, what was the guy's Oh, name? Jamie Mitchell, maybe? Yeah, Jamie Mitchell, I guess, was just going above and beyond. Yeah. Just pushing himself. Because um, there was one really standout day this year. And, yeah, exactly. And I guess it, it separated the guys who really wanted it and who wasn't true but I, I don't know I kind of uh, I had mixed feelings about that too it's like Shane Dorian didn't get a wave or, or maybe got one wave and Mark Healy maybe didn't get a wave and you know I respect that if they're out there and if they're not in the right spot and they're not going to just go just to go you know just for their reputation or whatever that they have that much respect for the wave that if they're not in the right spot it's not worth you know it's not worth risking so mm-hmm. you gotta respect that too on the other hand uh you know, see a guy like Jamie Mitchell would just go on regardless. He didn't care yeah. about his health. You know, it's like that's great and all that, but I don't know. You know, I um, I respect the other end of the spectrum too, where people respect the wave and yeah, they're not going to just risk it just for the photo or whatever else. You yeah, know? or because they bought a plane ticket and they made all yeah. this arrangement to get here. Yeah, yeah, it's not how that's you know that's waves on a different scale. You can't just throw yourself over the ledge and yeah. I mean, you could pay, pay a big price out there. It's just it's crazy how dangerous that wave is. In 1979, Richard launched a surf school in Santa Cruz. It grew out of an organic desire within the community. The local non-surfers wanted to participate in this activity that draws tourists from around the world to their local beaches. Richard's reputation as a surfer made him an authority. But his calm and patient demeanor is what's made his school a success for the past 36 years. Yeah, I started teaching in 1978 when I was 18 years old. I'm 54 now, so it's been quite a long journey of sharing. I can't think of another surf school that's run that long. 1978, that's crazy, huh? Is there anyone that you know of? Um, I'm not really sure. Maybe not, yeah. It's like the most prominent surf school that I know of, for sure. Yeah, just... um, I was lifeguarding, and a friend of mine, Calvin Holm, he had a, a local uh, class with the local parks and rec. And he goes, do you want to teach it? You Because know, he knew how into surfing I was. I go, yeah, sure. You know. And so I started teaching for the local parks and rec, and it's just grown into uh, more and more lessons. As people call me outside of the parks and rec, and so I do a lot of, lot of lessons. And then I started to do uh, overnight surf camps in 1990. So it'll be 25 years this summer that we have this program where Kids come, the parents drop them off. We have them for five days and we feed them and transport them and teach them yoga and uh, film them every day surfing, get into their mechanics and push their surfing ability to the next level, whether they're just beginning or uh, maybe they're good surfers. They want to you know, learn how to do a floater or whatever. Um, and then we started going to Costa Rica in 2000. Uh, so it's been about 14 years of going down there, just um, one month a year, you know, doing week-long programs down there. That's been really, really cool to be able to go somewhere warm and share a nice place with people. And people fly in to participate in that? Uh, yeah, people fly fly down there. They, they do their uh, travel arrangements on their own and just kind of hook up with us. And uh, another note, like when we started doing our surf camps in 1990, um, you know, the first year we were doing yoga com- combined with the with the surf camps, and just saw it as really complementary to surfing. And now it's gotten more mainstream, like yoga yeah, surf camps. So I look sure. back and I go, "Wow, we were kind of the first guys to yeah. kind of incorporate that into our programs as well." 
So that that's a big part of it, you know, just being aware of your body, eating eating well. You know, my yeah. wife's really helped out with the doing the yoga and the diet, and so it's a it's a really intensive, good way to um, improve your surfing skills. So what um, <laughs> what level of surfers do you cater to with the surf school? Uh, when I do my lessons, I would say a lot of beginners. But I coach other kids that are more advanced and all that kind of stuff. We do the whole spectrum, but in our lessons, definitely more novices. And then the surf camps, we get novices, but we get a lot of people who return for years and years and years and more advanced where they want to kind of push their skill to the next level. But a lot of novices with that too. What about what age uh, groups do you cater to? Uh, During the summer here in Santa Cruz, we do six weeks. Two of those weeks are adults. And then four of the weeks are kids, and the average age is between 12 and 15, but we take kids as young as 10, and we get older kids as well with those programs. But it's really a great experience, you know, especially for kids that don't have the opportunity to get the beach too often, just to be on the beach for a week and in the water every day, and in such a beautiful place as Santa Cruz, you know, it's a world surfing reserve because the variety of surf breaks we have here maybe like four or five places in the whole world have been declared a world surfing reserve and then on top of that it's a national marine sanctuary so this the wildlife that you see when you're out there surfing on a daily basis is just incredible so to have a place like this to run a program Mm -hmm. like a surf camp has just been incredible yeah i've really learned a lot uh, teaching over the years doing it for so long i'm still learning new techniques to uh relate uh, information to students so I, I train them and I'm pretty confident in the staff I have cool you provide the boards yeah stuff? boards and wetsuits yeah cool you mentioned lifeguarding at some point how how long were you lifeguarding I was a lifeguard for 15 years oh you were okay yeah for the city of Santa Cruz on the beach there and that's when I started teaching surfing and then that kind of took over where I got more into that rather than lifeguarding because just the demand people just kept calling and wanted to go surfing and the waves here in Santa Cruz are just so beautiful to share with with people Mm. just perfect ways for learning I mean this place I teach Cowell's Cove it's like I could take people out they've never surfed before and I could get them up and surf with them next to them put them in the curl of the wave and they could surf like you know 40 50 yards in in the curl of the wave their first go out and just the the stoke i see on people's faces over the years has just been invaluable it just kind of rubs off on you you know positive energy and vibe just um it's infectious and just be able to be part of that for so many years has been incredible well i think it's a shame to admit but there's times where i will go surfing and exit the water in a worse mood than i entered just because i'm thinking about work and then the waves are kind of crappy so my heart's not really in it but I just go and then I'm trying too hard to rip and then yeah. I don't you know and and um it's it's embarrassing that it's gotten to that you know so you're what you're talking about is like a good reminder yeah when you see that fresh stoke you know yeah. people can be so stoked on just for me, it's just being in the water, too. You know, like you say, somebody just go just to go, you yeah. know, and the ocean is very therapeutic as long as you don't, you know, we all have high standards for ourselves as far as performing out in the water. You want to, you know, put it together, but it is really difficult to really put it all together in the water all the time. And yeah. you just have to laugh at yourself and just realize how hard it is and how special it is when you do go out there and put together a good session. But when you don't, yeah, you can't be coming and kicking the sand. You really got to be appreciative that you're healthy enough. Totally. And you're still here breathing in this world that you're out there playing in the ocean. It's just uh, pretty much a blessing. One of the best things that I've seen that illustrated that recently was that new video. I don't know if you saw it. Kyle Boothman made about Anthony Tashnik. Oh, the kids were watching it a couple of days. I haven't had a chance to watch it. It's beautiful. It's so cool. beautifully made. Cool. Like Kyle did a phenomenal job with it, but Tashnik, like illustrates exactly what we're talking about he takes a a soft top out on nothing waves like ankle high waves i wouldn't even look twice at and like a pearson arrow gun i think he might have taken the fins out of it but just rides that you know on these ankle high waves in these perfectly sunny and beautiful day that he's getting the most out of it he's getting more out of that day than anybody else would have you know yeah and he talks all about exactly what we're talking about yeah you gotta have that attitude you know because um 
It is sad when you get to the point where you come in pissed off because you didn't get there. You fell in your best way or yeah. whatever. Yeah, you got to put it in perspective. That's totally. what uh, teaching yeah can help you with for sure. Yeah, yeah, being – like you said, it rubs off on you. Yeah. Um. So you've been around for – you know, you've seen a lot in the years that you've been around. Um. What has changed the most about Santa Cruz and the surf scene here and what has – remained exactly the same over those years? Uh, the uh, core crew of individuals that, you know, grow up close to the waves and surf out there all the time, you know, the faces have changed, but that's kind of stayed the same, you know. Uh, well, a little bit. It used to be a little more territorial maybe, you know, and um, there's definitely been ways of change in, in, in different uh, outlooks and, you know, sometimes the core crew would be pretty heavy partiers, and now it seems like um, the young kids that are growing up are just really re- respectful and knowing that, you know, partying hard is not, not cool. You know, you got to have your life together and your act together, and surfing is your recreation. And um, so it's a little less hardcore uh, now, which is, which is wonderful, man. The, the crew of kids that are growing up just really uh, have bright outlooks and. They get along pretty well, and um, seems like Nat Young's been a good ambassador. Oh man, yeah, he's just a respectful kid, happy-go-lucky. Yeah, not the hard partier. He's disciplined. He trains, and more of a more of an athlete, you know. So I think the um, the individuals are more respectable and more together, you know, because there, there has been eras over the years where people took more into partying and just being rebels and that kind of a thing with, with surfing. So I think uh, surfers are getting a little more respect as a result, you know, mm-hmm. rather than being on the outcast of society, they're fully mainstream here, you know, probably all over the world too. But, you know, there's just so many doctors and teachers or whatever, uh, a lot of professional people that surf and, um, the kids aren't delinquents, you know, that are surfing to get away from school or whatever else. They're just, you know, kids having fun. And, yeah. Um, and, of course, it's gotten more crowded over the years. But, you know, we're just blessed that uh, you can go north of Santa Cruz or south of Santa Cruz, get out of the city limits. There's so many ways. Yeah. Especially on a day like today. You know, it's all clean today. You can mm-hmm. go north or south. and Plenty of swell. But they're definitely uh, it's gotten more urbanized. Sure. What's your current relationship like with surfing? How often do you surf? Um, as much as I can. I still get in the water pretty much every day. If you I'm do. not teaching, I'm surfing. And um, like today, the waves are pumping, and I don't have to do any lessons today. I mean, I love to do lessons, um, but sometimes it kind of zaps all your energy when the waves are good. So my body's going to be fresh, and uh, I just feel like a kid, you know. No, it's good. Waves are going to be good, and I yeah. got time to go play myself. It's just surfing's. I still got that passion for it. It just some people quit surfing. I can't see how. You know, it's just I love getting out there and the challenge. You know that you have to try to put it all together. I love it. Good. Uh, final question for everybody interviewed: What was the last surfboard that you rode? The last surfboard I rode. Uh, <clears throat> Joey Thomas has been making my boards for like thirty years, and uh, we used to ride the uh, four fin boards that everybody's riding now, like thirty five years ago. Really? Yeah, just round pins, swallowtail, four fins. I just th- thrusters were never my thing. Well, we had twin fins there for a while, but uh, got really into four fins. And then um, Will Jobson came out with the twins are set up where we put the power fin in the back and the smaller fin in the front. And uh, I switched over to that, and I've been riding that for the last tw- 20 years. And uh, I don't know, I kind of like the, the power fin in the back rather than the bigger fin forward with the trailing fin in the back that most people ride. But um, what, yeah, about just, it? what about uh, it? What's the unique characteristic about it? Uh, it's just more rail to rail, and it's a little, um, it carries its speed. You don't have to pump so hard to get your speed. Like on a thruster, you got to really just keep pushing it the whole time to keep it going. But you get a little more glide. You could fly out on the flat spots. In Santa Cruz, you have some flat spots in between sections. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of glide over those. And um, it feels like snowboarding to me, just the way you could use your edges, you know, two mm-hmm. fins on the edge. Mm-hmm. rather than just I mean if you're on a thruster you can be pivoting off your back foot in the pocket when the waves are really good that that's a great design sure but for around here the four fins yeah Kelly nice. Kelly uh, at Margaret River this <laughs> event talking about 
one of his things he doesn't like about the four fin is like just sticks a little too much. Like it's good for speed, but like trying to get it to release, it has too much stick. So I'm wondering with what you're talking about where that those last two fins are smaller, you probably still benefit from a little bit of release without as much of that stickiness that he's talking about. Yeah, I think those I think you're right about the other four fin design where you have your power fin forward and your smaller fin trailing. You know, the power fin in the back and the smaller fin forward, um, it doesn't it doesn't stick very much. And yeah. you get a lot of speed, like in the barrel, too, or just gliding around sections or mm. off the bottom, the projection. It's just, just incredible. I mean, there's disadvantages, too, but just for the, how I like to surf, yeah, it's, those four fins are awesome. So what was that board then? What was that last board you had? Uh, six, six, two, round pin, twins or fin setup. Um, yeah, thanks, Joey Thomas, for all these years of incredible boards. Wow. Shout out, Joey Joe Thomas. Thomas. Yeah, Joey JT. <laughs> I'm just kind of proud of um, I was able to kind of just hang on to what I love love doing over all these years. You know, I'm uh, 54, and my whole life's been around surfing. I'm really passionate about surfing. I love surfing, and um, I was I was able to you know have a professional career surfing big waves and going to Hawaii all those years, and, <clears throat> and then my uh, surf school where I teach a lot of people how to surf. Just it's really rewarding to share that. With, with so many people over the years and um, you know actually make a living out of surfing too is pretty pretty nice you know it's like I don't do it all for the money I've never had the vision of doing uh, oh I'm gonna make a business so I could you know keep surfing and still be involved it just kind of happened naturally and I'm pretty proud that I actually was able to pull that off in my life richardschmidt.com is the website and we'll have a link to it as well as all the footage and photos of everything we discussed in today's show on surfsplendorpodcast.com also in regard to santa cruz episode eight of surf splendor focuses on santa cruz shapers doug hout ward coffee michelle junod and bob pearson if you'd like to listen to that one it's in the archives as well so check out surfsplendorpodcast.com. Follow us on social media at Surf Splendor. And just make sure to rate and review the show in iTunes or whatever app you listen in. All right. We will be back next week with an all-new episode of Surf Splendor. Until then, this is your host, David Scales, reminding you to shred on.